Welcome to Fox Sports and the Jabo Podcast. Here are your hosts, Rob Nyer and CJ Nitkowski. And welcome to the Jabo Podcast. I'm CJ Nitkowski along with Rob Nyer as always. Uh, and this one's going to be a little bit different. This podcast will have a little bit of a different feel. We are going to talk about a couple of the latest stories, and then Rob's going to turn the tables and put on his interviewer hat, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, as Rob, I guess, interviews me. As uncomfortable as I even saying that makes me feel, I'm looking forward uh, to the discussion. It's going to be a lot of fun. But we are going to get into, first, uh, the biggest news of this week, and it's Justin Upton and the Detroit Tigers agreeing to a deal six years, $132 million in AAV, of just over 22 million and people asking surprised that this happened and do the Tigers need another right-handed power bat they needed something in left field and I don't think they were going to go back to UN Cespedes and I don't think Chris Davis was real a real viable option although we did hear some rumblings about the Tigers at least talking to him some people saying it never got serious that wasn't really a fit but Justin Upton is their guy and at 22 million dollars a year Rob I don't know if I'm that surprised based on the money that's out there and based on what their owner, Mike Gillich, has been saying, which is he's not afraid to spend the money. He wants to win. We know his history. He's got the Stanley Cups, but he wants that World Series ring. Was this the necessary step or at least a big step in the right direction of getting Tigers owner Mike Gillich that World Series ring? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> look, when people talk about getting a World Series ring, uh, <clears throat> you have to be skeptical, if only because you're, the odds are so greatly against it. I don't care what you do in the offseason. You know, you're you're just fighting for a chance to be one of eight teams. Uh, I'm sorry, ten teams mm-hmm. in the playoffs. Um, and then once you get there, you've got roughly speaking somewhere between an eight percent chance and a twelve percent chance of winning the World Series. I, I'm being very broad there, of course, but um, the question that I've seen people raise is: Does is this even enough to get the Tigers in the playoffs, let alone into the World Series? Well, I would say that. It's, it's a pretty good start, at least. Um, it's easy to forget now, but the Tigers were favored to win, to, to win the division just a year ago. It isn't like they're that far off. Now, granted, you have to take what, what happened in 2015 into consideration, and uh, I'm not sure their projection right now shows them winning the division. I, I think it probably doesn't, although they're, they're certainly in the mix. But they needed a bat, no question. Um, and... This is a very reasonable price, about $7 million a year for, I mean, sorry, $22 million a year, excuse me, for a, a three or four win player in terms of wins above replacement. Um, in the long term, does it look like a great deal? Maybe not, but nobody cares about the long term. All they care about is the short term, right? Certainly, Mr. Illich does not care about the long term at 86 years old and just trying to get this done. And I think, you know, the people that sit around him, Al Avila, the new general manager, his kids that are set to probably inherit that team and want to make sure that's still in good financial standing, worry about these kinds of contracts, uh, especially when you consider they also have the Verlander contract and they have the Miguel Cabrera contract. Now, there is an out after two years, which if Justin Upton has two great years and he wants to re enter free agency at 30 years old, that's probably a good thing for the Detroit Tigers 
and maybe they go ahead and let him walk if he wants to do that. We'll see if they go in that direction. But it's interesting. The Tigers last year, take it for what it's worth, were first in batting average in all of Major League Baseball. They were only 16th in run scored. And so this is a, a move that gives them just a little bit more pop in the middle of that lineup. Uh, the home runs were down a little bit for the Tigers. We know they dealt with some injuries. They were 18th in home runs. Uh, that's certainly going to go up next year. And I, I wonder how they'll rival the Blue Jays as one of the better lineups. I dug in a little bit and started looking because everyone was concerned. Look at all these right-handed bats. But the numbers against righties are actually pretty good. Miguel Cabrera doesn't matter lefty or righty. Ian Kinsler has good numbers against righty. Justin Upton, better numbers against righties than lefties, which I thought significantly better uh, last year, which I thought was pretty intriguing. Uh, Victor Martinez, of course, had the injury plagued year, but he's that one switch hitter in the middle of that lineup. But uh, up and down the middle of that lineup, at least, they're pretty strong against right-handed pitching, not uh, nearly as susceptible as maybe one thinks. When you look at that, all those righties, would that have concerned you? Would you like maybe a Chris Davis bat as a better fit in Detroit over Justin Upton? Well, I think in the abs- in in the in, in, in a vacuum, sure, uh, be- because you'd like to have balance in your lineup. But I don't think balance is essential. I think having lots of guys who can hit is essential. It isn't as if Justin Upton uh, is a bad hitter because he can't hit right-handers very well. It, you know, you have to look at the overall numbers, and they're fine, um, or have been fine, and. It's funny, you know. You mentioned the the, the batting average, which was outstanding, uh, first in the league, um, and they finished tenth in the league in scoring. But they were third in the American League in, in OPS, mm-hmm. so they they greatly underperformed uh, their OPS, their on base plus slugging last season. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I didn't study up for this, but my guess is they just hit poorly in clutch situations, and we know that doesn't typically carry over. So. This wasn't a, a, at all a bad lineup last season. When you have Cabrera uh, and Upton and <clears throat> J.D. Martinez, that's a pretty good start. Now, they've lost Cespedes, of course, who they had for, for two-thirds of the season. Uh, I think Upton is a solid replacement uh, for, for Cespedes. And, and they're going to score runs. I think a lot of people are worried more about their pitching. Yeah, their pitching is interesting. I think Verlander looked really good at the end of the year, and I think uh, he's going to be able to, to repeat that, and I think we'll see him get off to a much better start than he did a year ago. I like Jordan Zimmerman there. I think that's a good addition. I think a lot of this comes down to, and we can say this about a lot of teams, what happens at the back end? Anibal Sanchez, is he going to be healthy the entire year? Daniel Norris will probably get a chance. Uh, they have Mike Pelfrey, who they brought in, which was kind of a highly criticized or somewhat criticized move, and Alavila seemed to have taken issue with that, uh, didn't like some of the things that he had heard but you know he's a guy certainly they also have some depth and michael fulner and uh, fulmer excuse me and shane green uh matt boyd buck farmer there's some arms there kyle ryan so they have some more depth than they've had in the past but it'll come down uh, i agree with you that starting pitching verlander is going to be key and that bullpen as well which is revamped that was the one thing alavila was not going to allow happen his first year as general manager is at least have a bullpen on paper that everybody was questioning because that's been an issue there they have k-rod they have mark Lowe, justin wilson is there to go with uh alex wilson and blaine Hardy, who are already there, we'll see what happens with Bruce Rondon. Sent him home last year for lack of effort, which is really disappointing. That big arm, uh, but they're a much better bullpen. The question marks there in the rotation are guys going to be healthy and ready. That probably dictates where this team goes. But man, this division is tough, and I don't like being asked to predict. I just kind of like, I, you know, it just makes me feel bad because I, I know I'm not going to probably get it right. It makes me feel like I don't know what I'm doing. But trying to guess and predict who's going to win a division, who knows? But almost every team in that division has a chance right now. Yeah, they're bunched up. And I, the only thing I would I, I would be willing to bet that the Tigers don't finish last again. 
Beyond that, I have no idea. It's, yeah, it's a bad feeling. All right, and I, I, when I ask them, people ask them, it's like, oh, I don't know, and then they want to kill me when I don't get it right. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, that's uh, some good news for Tigers fans. They're certainly excited, and they should be very happy with their owner. They have an owner who has been all in, who treats this team uh, like it should be treated, which not a toy, but at the same time just an overcompetitive, uh, very rich man, a $5 billion uh, net worth for him, one of the richest in the world, and uh, he's in the top 100, I believe, maybe even in the top 50. So he is a guy that certainly wants to win and is willing to do whatever it takes and for his sake i certainly hope uh, that he gets that ring another piece of interesting news that came in and this just happened on tuesday morning and rob you pointed it out to me i actually missed it and did radio today for three hours and somehow missed this story but major league baseball is investigating you darvish after his brother was seized in a gambling ring and it sounds like it's a no doubter that his brother is in trouble and that his brother has done some things here where it sounds like he was taking bets on both major league baseball games and Japanese baseball games, the NPB, well, police want to talk to, and MLB wants to talk to you, Darvish, and find out if he had anything to do with this. And this, you know, gambling is one of those things these days where we just, you know, it's an automatic, like, hey, nobody's going to look the other way. It's not a big deal. This is always a big deal in Major League Baseball. What are you making of this you Darvish case and MLB at least wanting to talk to him and find out what kind of connection he may have with his brother? Well, first of all, I, I would guess that if anything happened, if anything, there was any impropriety here on you, Darvish's part, it would be quite difficult to prove without transcripts of phone conversations or, or, or emails. Um, but it's very clearly an incredibly serious thing here. Uh, because if, if Darvish was giving him any information, his brother any information, I'm guessing that would result in a long, long suspension. Uh, I wouldn't even want to guess at the at the, the length, um, but this is it sounds incredibly serious to me that they're investigating this. And, and given the, the the crime that his brother has been charged with, uh, what I would I'm curious about to know from you is is <clears throat> what would what could you Darvish have done? Not pitching, so it's not like he was throwing games, mm-hmm. but not pitching in 2015. What could he have done? What could he have said to his brother that could get him in serious trouble? I mean, I think it would be anything as far as passing on information, right? I think if he was sharing stuff, especially within the clubhouse, about, you know, maybe the way a guy's feeling that day, if it was, you know, close to game time or that, you know, the night before and saying, you know, so-and-so's arm is bothering him, uh, he's going to try to get through it early on. If he hears that kind of information, which I don't know, I mean, his English is pretty good. I don't know how much he'd be able to pick up on that information anyway. That's the kind of thing, or how, you know, how guys maybe are feeling, uh, maybe a lineup change that he knows is going to be coming the next night, right? If he finds out, you know, whatever, one of the big bats is getting, Prince Fielder's not going to be playing uh, on Wednesday because it's a good lefty or he needs a day off or whatever it might be. If he had some of that kind of information that he was sharing with his brother, he could probably get into some pretty serious trouble there because the lines are set, uh, assuming certain lineups are going to be out there, assuming certain guys are going to pitch. Uh, but if something is going to change their injury information, whatever it may be, that could be the kind of information that he could potentially be sharing with his brother. The yahoosports.com. I guess the Yahoo.com a column on this mentioned something about, you know, it's very possible that he inadvertently was giving information, not even knowing and just talking baseball and talking about the team, talking around the league and trying to find out maybe what you Darvish knows, that there's information that the average fan in Japan could not get. I mean, gambling is a serious issue in Asia. There's been problems before uh, in Taiwan, uh, in Japan, in Korea. There's always uh, been some speculation over the years here and there with some guys getting in trouble. Uh, they take that very seriously, but th- there's a couple of 
different ways that he might be able to help out. I mean, there's certainly nothing that's a definite, uh, but some information that maybe would sway him one way or another if he was setting lines on Major League Baseball games. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just wonder how this investigation is going to go. Uh, who, what sort of information they have access to? Can, can they subpoena Darvish's phone records, his email? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I have no idea what the, what MLB's investigative powers really are, and uh, uh, I don't know. And I don't think we'll find out necessarily unless they they release the results and we're able to piece those things together. But look, if you're a Rangers fan or just a baseball fan, it's it, I think it's got to be somewhat disturbing. So, sure, and they got their hands full real quick. That's think right. Actually, baseball investigating you know the three domestic abuse issues that they have this year with Araldis Chapman, Jose Reyes, and Yasiel Puig, and now. Uh, this other thing as well here with you, Darvish, and uh, nothing else that comes to mind that's going on, but a lot of off-the-field things um, here in Major League Baseball that their investigative unit has has had to deal with this offseason, and, and never a good thing. Uh, it seems like that's always been more of a football issue, though, where it's just more off-the-field issues where the league has had to intervene or discipline guys, and all of a sudden we're seeing now four cases um, of some incidents here that MLB has to get involved. So I wonder how, how thin they're getting spread as well uh, when they're sitting here trying to get this information. And plus, they had to go through the Al Jazeera thing as well and figure out and follow up on that story with Taylor Teagarden and Ryan Howard and Ryan Zimmerman and, and even though those guys denied everything, they still have to do their due diligence and make sure there was nothing there in regard to any of those guys taking testosterone. It sounded like Teagarden essentially admitted to it. Uh, Al Jazeera now closing their doors and, and going out of business as a television network, but it's out there. And so Major League Baseball has to do their due diligence and follow up. So a lot going on uh, in that regard here for Major League Baseball and trying to invest Investigate some things that they got to make sure they cover. All right, no more delaying. We're going to talk about you now. <laughs> <clears throat> CJ, for those who don't know, is, is incredibly humble, at least publicly. Privately, I'm not sure. Well, he has been humble when I've been around him, but maybe in the, when he's in his den, his rumpus room, he waxes poetically to himself about um, <clears throat> what a wonderful broadcaster and pitcher he, he, he is. I don't know. But publicly, CJ is very, um, I think, reticent um, to talk about himself. But I, I have to say, ever since I started working for Fox almost two years ago, um, I had this idea where I would interview both you and Gabe, because then he was working for us and working on Jabo, um, just to give the, the readers, at that point we didn't have the podcast, give the readers a better idea of who you guys were. Um, I never followed through with that. I don't remember why, but I didn't. But I, I feel like now... Um, Now's the time. There hasn't been a lot of baseball news. And even though you and I have gotten together a few times uh, for work-related reasons over the last couple of years, I- I've never really gotten to sit down with you and just sort of pick your brain. And um, and I've always been curious about so many things. Um, first thing I want to ask you, uh, and then we'll get into more uh, serious stuff maybe, but i got to ask, what's a wyvern? You know, it's funny, I, I was doing a, uh, I guess it was a radio interview recently, or maybe it was just hosting radio, you know, people always ask about, I play with so many different teams in so many places, and it, it came up asking about what a wyvern was, I just actually had this conversation the other day, and I couldn't remember, it was a conversation about hats, like your favorite hats that you'd worn, and I'd forgotten when I played there, uh, the SK Wyverns, which are a team in Korea, uh, but when I had played there, uh, I looked it up, but I had completely forgotten about it. But it, when uh, this came up not too long ago, I'd come to find out and remembered and kind of was reminded uh, that this is a legendary kind of dragon. Uh, kind of looks, uh, you know, two, two legs, long tail. It's, a, it's kind of a, a sea-dwelling kind of dragon. Uh, but I think that's probably maybe the best 
best way to describe it. The, the uh, mascot wasn't very intimidating, wasn't very <laughs> scary looking when I was over there. But yeah, I didn't know either. And a lot of people say it wrong. You said it right, which is nice. You get a lot of uh, butch pronunciations when it comes to anything that happens overseas. But uh, the SK Wyverns, SK is a telecom company. All the teams over there are uh, corporate sponsored, uh, if they're not corporate owned, where they at least have the, the, you know, a corporation's name on them, uh, kind of used as a marketing vehicle. But a Wyvern is a dragon. And uh, I will tell you that, um, and I feel a little bad saying this, I never like to talk bad about people, but of the 40 managers I had, that was easily the worst experience I had in SK. It just was not not a pleasant experience for me at all. And uh, my first taste of Korea was actually not a very good one. Uh, I gotten, had gotten released, which I was very thrilled because it just was not working <laughs> out. And uh, I was looking forward to going home and just saying, you know what, Korea is not for me. And I actually got claimed off waivers and had to stay. I didn't I didn't have the option. If I wanted you the rest of my contract, I had, if I wanted my contract, I had to stay, oh. and during my 10-day kind of waiver period, my agent had told me that a team might claim me, and I just asked him if he could call them and just tell them I just really wanted to go home and to please not claim me. But it didn't work out that way, and I ended up going to the Doosan Bears and really enjoying uh, my time there, and it was a really good experience, which I'm glad because I would have hated to have left Korea uh, with just that one kind of bad experience under my belt. So it worked out for the best. But yeah, a wyvern, to answer your question, is uh, it's kind of like a dragon reptile I, I, kind, I of kind of thing of, of the fishtail. I sort of thought it was something like that because I, I have some some vague memory of wyverns being in the Dungeons and Dragons, which I had a a, a brief dalliance with many many years ago, but I wasn't sure. So I, I just looking at the teams you played for, that was sort of the most interesting <laughs> team name, and you played for a lot of teams. Um, <clears throat> so let's go way back. That was toward almost near the end of your career, and we'll get to the we'll get to the end of your playing career. I hope in our allotted now roughly thirty five minutes. But um, you were a first round pick. Um, and you grew up, as I recall you telling me one time, a Yankees fan, um, mm-hmm. grew up on Long Island, I believe. Is that right? Uh, no, the other side of the Hudson. So I actually Northwest of New York city, just over the George Washington bridge, as you kind of go up New Jersey and then cross back into New York. Got it. Now is, is, oh, okay. So, so you were a Yankees fan. Who, who was your favorite player growing up? So the first, I got hooked on baseball because of Willie Randolph. And I had met him when I was younger. So he was my first go-to guy. My father was in the Navy when I was really young. He retired when I was in second grade. And Willie Randolph had come to speak to a bunch of Navy recruits. Uh, This was probably around 1981, 82. And uh, so my dad's going to bring me to work that day. And I have no idea. You know, we would play catch in the yard a little bit, but I really had no idea. And so Willie Randolph is speaking to these Navy recruits. I'm there. I still remember what I wore. I had this turtleneck sweater that must have been a hand-me-down for sure from one of my older cousins that I was wearing. It was one of the few days I had my hair combed. And (laughs) I was just bored listening to him talk. And I literally blurted out why he was addressing addressing these recruits in, in probably the brattiest little way when are we going home? <laughs> and my dad, who was extremely, extremely strict growing up as a military guy, was in the Navy for 20 years, shot me that look where for people who have a father like that know exactly what I'm talking about, where it instantly scares the crap out of you and you realize you're in huge trouble. I was only, like I said, probably eight years old at the time. Um, so anyway, that happens. Got to meet him, took a picture with him, all that kind of stuff. But it really didn't resonate with me. And then we were home later uh, within that week. The Yankees were playing on television. My dad was sitting in the living room watching the game, and he's like, "Hey, CJ, there's you know, there's Willie Randolph. There's the guy we met the other day." And that was like my moment. 
that was it for me. Like I saw Willie Randolph playing on TV. I was convinced he remembered me. Like we were tight. We were friends. <laughs> and Willie Randolph was my guy from that moment on. Um, eventually, uh, I, I kind of changed a little bit. I realized, you know what? I'm not fast. I can't play second base. I'm left-handed. <laughs> so that we don't really have a lot in common as far as players go. But he was my guy for a while. And then ultimately, it switched over to Dave Rigetti and Don Manningly, the left-handedness. At least I'd have a chance at being maybe something like one of those guys. But he was the one. He was the one that kicked it off for me and got to meet him after playing against him in 95. I didn't play against the Yankees the first time we went through Yankee Stadium, but I had him sign this picture that I'm actually looking at right now that's sitting in my office. Uh, it was a picture of my dad, Willie Randolph, and another guy. My dad and this other guy are in their full Navy uh, dress uniforms. Willie Randolph in the middle with a big afro, and Willie signed it for my dad after all these years. So this is, what, 16 years later, 1995, or 14, I guess, 15 years later. Uh, Willie signed it for my dad and uh, gave it to him, which, so which Willie was, was a pretty cool moment. Was Willie coaching then? No, oh, so when I no at the time this yeah this was ninety five so he, Willie was the third base coach of the Yankees and then when I played for the Yankees in 04, he was our bench coach which was oh, uh, wow. really cool for me too I mean That's you never great. lose that part right I mean sometimes I don't know if you've experienced this you know in your career covering the game sometimes you meet your heroes <clears throat> or the guys you looked up to and it can be really disappointing and you almost wish that you didn't uh, just because the image that you had of them kind of gets ruined uh, a little bit that happens this did not happen with Willie Randolph and Don Mattingly was our hitting coach I believe at the time no actually Don Manning was our bench coach. Willie Randolph was our third base coach, if I'm not mistaken, when I was in New York. Either way, whatever it was, they were all there, um, which was really cool for me. Just a really cool moment to actually get to have those guys as coaches eventually so, at some point. So when you when you are actually around them to that degree, is there a point at which you go up to them sort of sheepishly and say, when I was a kid – you were my guy or do you sort of avoid that because it just feels like adults don't do that sort of thing no i avoid it i definitely avoided it once i was already there i was a little bit older right that was 2004 so i was 31 so i'd been around a little bit at that point and uh kind of let that stuff go i will tell you though i mentioned dave rigetti as one of the guys when i was coming up through the minor league system in 95 willie rent or uh, dave rigetti was still playing and he was trying to make a comeback and he was pitching uh for the nashville sounds which i can't remember who they were triple a for at the time maybe the cameras it wasn't the twins but anyway Whoever, whoever their AAA team was, and I actually got to start against Dave Rigetti, <laughs> where he's pitching and I'm pitching, which was really great. I remember very well. I threw seven shutout innings. I got a no decision. The next day, he's out running poles, like in the outfield, the old Indianapolis Stadium. And this is this was really unprofessional. I mean, I, I stopped him while he was running. I went out to talk to him. I couldn't help myself. I wore number 19 in high school because of him. And so I just went up to him and just let him know it was really cool to have played against him. I said, oh, my family couldn't believe that I had a chance to pitch against you. Probably didn't make him feel that great, but he was super nice. That's and he said, crazy. listen, he goes, you you keep pitching the way you did last night. You'll be in the big leagues in no time and signed a ball for me. And I got called up a few days later. And it was just that that was a really cool moment for me uh, just because he was kind of one of my guys. And I allowed myself to go down that path of, of being a, still a fan. Cause I was a fan. I still am a fan, but I was definitely still very much a fanboy then. Cause I had not been to the big leagues yet. Uh, I do help tell people you stop rooting for the Yankees. The first time you go into Yankee stadium and they kick your butt, which happened to me in the one start that I did have against them in Yankee stadium facing Jimmy key uh, in 96. So, the fandom ends pretty quickly after that. But for the most part, once those guys were coaches of mine, uh, I got a little bit more professional. Well, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Not only did you have – did you come across them? Did you did your paths cross later? But you actually had these incredibly meaningful relationships where you were there with them in the same uniform or pitching against them. That's, that's pretty incredible. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's you know it was a dream come true to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I mean, first even to go through that stadium the first time, pitch on that mound, then to put that uniform on. When I got the call up, I was in AAA that year at '04, and I split the season between the Braves, which I spent three months with them, got released, went to AAA with the Yankees, got called up uh, a few weeks later. I remember very specifically, Bucky Dent was my manager in AAA, and I remember that phone call like it was yesterday because even though at that point I had played a bunch in the big leagues and been on a couple different teams, that was still the one moment that sticks out as like really feeling like not that I made it but that was the realization of a dream uh, to put on those pinstripes millions of kids uh, dream, have that same exact dream and not very many actually get to live it and when Bucky Dent called me and said hey CJ we, you know it was an off day I was having lunch at Panera Bread and, and I remember like I said like it was yesterday he says hey we, we got to get to New York you're going to the big leagues and I was like and I was 31 I mean at 31 you can be a little jaded and you're not <laughs> quite the same guy I was super excited I actually remember driving back to my hotel and pounding on the steering wheel um, in excitement knowing I don't know how long was going to last what was going to happen but i was definitely putting on a yankee uniform and, and that was a really cool moment you know it's funny i i grew up as i might have told you at some point hating the yankees because <laughs> of what they did to the royals in 76 and 77 right they uh-huh. both yep. years the yankees made me cry uh-huh. um so i hated them for for a long time but i reached a point at, i'm not sure when this happened but Every time I've had a player who I appreciated for one reason or, or another, mm-hmm. and, and, and that player became a Yankee for whatever reason, I couldn't wait to see what they look like in pinstripes because they just people just look good in that uniform. You know, I, I, <laughs> I came to appreciate the Yankees' history and, mm-hmm. and their look. Um, I'm not a big fan of their ballpark, was never a big fan of their ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. But just seeing, for example... Brandon McCarthy in pinstripes gave me a real charge. So I can imagine what it felt like for you. And I'll tell you this, too. One thing, you know, I played for eight different teams in the major leagues, and you get different experiences. There was nothing like putting that one on. And I, I always, it stuck out to me that I noticed when I had that uniform on, and I like to interact with fans here and there in the stadium and, you know, kind of always one of these guys that's taking everything in around me, probably to a fault that probably hurt my career a little bit. But people definitely look at you differently when you wear that uniform, even though it didn't go very well, you know, um, it didn't pitch very well. I had a couple of good games. I got to pick up a win. Mariano got to close out one of my wins. That was kind of cool. I got to, to finish out a game and hear Frank Sinatra sing at Yankee Stadium. Those kinds of things are all really cool. Some small little moments. But, you know, the overall experience wasn't that great for me from a pitching standpoint. But people always look at you differently uh, when you have that uniform on. It's a completely different experience than the other eight teams that I played for. And I played in a couple of big markets, played for the Mets and, um, you know, played in Detroit, even though we weren't very good. Then played in Atlanta. Um, and it's just um, it's just a different feeling. What and, do you, and fans what, just look at you completely differently. What, what do you remember about the first time you walked into the Yankee home clubhouse at Yankee Stadium and saw your locker? Well, I will tell you this. It was it was just an absolute cluster because when I got called up, it was an off day for us, but it was not an off day for the Yankees. So imagine this. I'm having lunch in Columbus, Ohio, and, uh, and Panera Bread at probably 12 or 1 o'clock. And like I said, and Buck said, we got to get to get you to New York tonight for the game. And so I sprint. I go home. I, I you know, I was so used to this. I'd become such an expert. I could be in Columbus and thinking I'm just there playing AAA baseball and have my bags packed and be on my way within an hour and on an airplane. And you know, we're going somewhere else. Like that's just something I got used to in my career because of how much moving around that I did. So I'm on the airplane. I have to sit on the tarmac for what seemed like probably two or three hours. My flight was delayed. I landed in. Look, the game already started by the time I landed. This is pre-Wi-Fi and airplanes, and I was taking a smaller plane anyway to Laguardia and. 
then I land, and when I land, I get an update from the game. There is uh, one of the Yankee security guards waiting for me and says, if I remember correctly, I think it was A-Rod hit a home run. A-Rod or Sheffield hit a home run to tie the game in the bottom of the night. You have to get to the stadium. <laughs> so technically, I was already a member of the team that day. Um, which was actually was on my mother's birthday, if I remember correctly, August third of two thousand and four. And so we're sprinting. I have a you know former New York cop, New York City cop, taking me to Yankee Stadium. You know, flying there. I get there. The game is going on, and I have to get out in the bullpen. Yeah, I think I want to say the game went ten or eleven innings that night. So I'm there and I'm running into the stadium. I was I'd been there before, but never had been on the home side. Run in. My locker was right in the front, and literally getting dressed as fast as I can. I really couldn't even take in that moment oh. where I'd say, hey, here's my Yankee locker, right. uh, and actually <laughs> sign my contract in only my underwear because you can't go out there without actually having signed the contract. So I'm signing it in my underwear. I'm getting dressed as fast as I can. I'm sprinting out to the bullpen, you know, kind of going the back way. You know, way. let me stop you for a second. That yeah. sounds, like, that sounds like, a, a, like a recurring nightmare. <laughs> well, I did get, I got dressed. At least I didn't continue. The nightmare, of course, is when you're actually on the mound in your underwear. I didn't have that one, uh, but I did stand there and uh, sign that contract in my underwear, sprint out to the bullpen, and then uh, and, and get out there. And I started throwing a little bit. Something happened, and I want to say I, I have them backwards. Either Sheffield hit the home run to tie it, and A Rod to win it, or vice versa. But we ended up winning the game, and I had to warm up. And I was throwing, and it was it wasn't good. My heart was going. I didn't feel nervous or anything, but obviously. I had there was some emotion because I could not keep the ball below the catcher's head, and he was standing up. Like just as I was throwing, everything was up, 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 like bad. Uh, and I think he was looking at me. He was like, "Oh my God, would you really just call this guy up?" Um, and it was kind of it was just kind of a weird moment. Um, a lot of strange things happening. But yeah, signing my contract in my underwear, so I didn't get that moment to really take it in. But I did over the two months that I was there. I definitely regret uh, not keeping a little bit more of a journal during that time, and really all of my career for that matter, because you forget so much, and, and certain things kind of. Uh, you know, uh, jar your memory a little bit and kind of remind you of some stuff. But it, it was a really cool uh, two months and, and the experience of a lifetime. So you mentioned uh, the, the, the the nightmare, the recurring dream about pitching with your underwear <laughs> or less. And I know, I'm sure that must be fairly common because I have recurring nightmares from my college days uh, or high school days. Um, and I'm sure for pitchers, there are recurring nightmares. And, and the one you mentioned is the one that 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 Nuklelouch has in in Bull mm-hmm. Durham, right? Which <laughs> That's right. I'm sure you've seen. Oh, um, yeah. And there's a there's a line in there where I'm I'm going to I'm going to mangle it, but basically Kevin Costner says is talking to to Nuklelouch and he says something about uh, God having uh, put that lightning bolt inside your right arm. Remember that line? Mhm. Yeah. And I I remember I'm I'm wondering if there was a moment because Again, for people who who don't know, uh, CJ was a, a first round draft pick. I believe the ninth pick in the draft. Um, you had a lightning bolt in your arm, and I'm wondering if there was a point in your in your in your youth when you realized that oh, this is different. Uh, I, I can do things that nobody else here can do. It came pretty late for me, actually, and that was because I was very average in high school. And I, I like telling my story, not because I think it's special, but because I want people to be encouraged by it, especially these days, because everything is happening so much earlier in these kids' lives. And I hate the trends that we see where kids are asked to be uh, specializing in one sport at such an early age, and kids are taking lessons and lifting weights much earlier than there ever have been. And for some guys, it's okay, uh, but it's there's more people doing it that way than probably should. There's more people playing travel baseball and playing year round than probably should. Uh, but I was very average in high school. I never broke 80 miles an hour. Uh, 
in high school. I did have a really good sophomore year when I made the varsity team, and we won a state championship at a small Catholic high school in New Jersey. I went to Don Bosco Prep, which has become a really good football uh, high school in northern New Jersey. But at the time, uh, we were kind of an underdog that slipped in and sneakily won a state championship my sophomore year. And that kind of got me on the map in my high school. Um, but I was a skinny 155-pound kid, did not get drafted out of Wait, high school, didn't even know 155 what David was. 155 as a senior? What's that? 155 as a senior? I probably got up to closer to 180 by the time I was a senior, uh-huh. but I was I was 6'1", 155 pounds as a sophomore. Yeah. Uh, just you know, just a, just skinny as a rail, and that was probably my biggest year. I remember went seven and one, and we and we won that state championship, and I threw a complete game in the final, and all that kind of fun stuff that happened. So that was my maybe a little bit of a coming out part for me at the high school level. But I never broke 80 miles an hour in high school, and was told and then, I was it was that because you weren't strong enough, or because your mechanics weren't good enough? Uh, I just you know we weren't thinking about it. We weren't doing anything to try to increase velocity. We weren't long tossing. We were lifting weights, but we didn't know. I mean, the, where, where we are right now, exercise physiology and the study uh, of athletes and the best ways to train. I mean, that's why we're seeing so many hard throwers in Major League Baseball. This wasn't happening, especially in New Jersey, where I was going to high school, living in New York, going to high school in New Jersey. I lived right on the border. These things were not happening then. And guys that threw hard just naturally threw hard. And I wasn't one of those guys, uh, but did get a, a chance to play in college and actually went to a Division II school before I went to St. John's. I went to Florida Atlantic for a year that was a disaster i was one and eight with a with a mid four year eight and certainly not on anybody's uh, draft watch list or anything like that and then i transferred to st john's a combination of getting homesick and i just things weren't really working out for me there and i wanted and, to go home and were you still not throwing above 80 uh, i probably saw it a little bit i probably saw 81 82 83 maybe my freshman year in college but still still uncoordinated not that i think i ever got like coordination completely where it should have been for a major league athlete but you know un- uncoordinated goofy uh things not going really well and so i transferred to st john's and got around a group of really competitive guys my roommates that i live with had a couple in particular who are still close friends that really pushed me we started working harder and i started inadvertently kind of long tossing and kind of doing it the alan jager way for people that find that follow this stuff at all he's a high and loose and let it fly kind of trevor bauer long toss like just throw it as high as you can and as far as you can and we were doing that and i specifically I remember one of my roommates saying to me that fall when I transferred to St. John's, a teammate, he's like, why, why are you throwing the ball like that? That doesn't do anything for you. And I said, I don't know. It just feels good on my arm. And then the next spring, we, we had a trip out to California, and uh, I got a chance to pitch against Clemson, which is a big deal when you're going to a northern school, and beat Clemson. They were ranked 20th at the time and picked up a win against Arizona, who was ranked 7th at the time. These were big deals to me, the fact that I still remember them. Uh, and when I got back, a scout had called our apartment, a guy from the Dodgers, and I forgot his name, he, and, but he called me and he said, hey, you know, want to let you know, we just wanted to get in touch. You know, they're kind of doing some of their homework, which you know, threw me off, and he goes, yeah, you, you hit 91 when you were out in California. And I was like, what? I mean, I had no idea. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you, you were sitting, you know, your max velocity was sitting right around 90, 91. Now, I probably hadn't heard anything above 84 to that point in my life. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. And then um, next season comes my junior year, and I show up on Baseball America's top 100 prospects. I don't even know if they still do it, the top 100 draft prospects. I was the last pitcher listed. I was number 99 overall <laughs> and the last pitcher. Very easily could not even have been on that list. I remember it very well because I was very excited about it, and I was told that I might go in the 10th round that year, and that was exciting. This was a big deal for me. Not and when did this drafted. list come out? Right before my junior year started, so it's the spring, you know, but it must be March, or not, probably earlier than that, maybe January of, 2000, of 1994, Got right it. before the draft. Yep. And my season, you know, comes along, and all of a sudden, 
I'm just climbing up. I keep hearing, oh, maybe seventh round, maybe fifth round. And I'm hearing, hey, you hit 93 today. You hit 94 today. Like all of a sudden my velocity was creeping up. It all kind of happened. And it wasn't until two weeks before the draft, two weeks before, and somebody said to me, you're probably going to go pretty high in the first round. I had no idea. It just, you know, some of these guys know ahead of time, right? Alex, uh, was it Bregman, the kid that got drafted from the uh, the shortstop from LSU? I think he went second last year. I remember when I was there a year ago or two years earlier, and they said, yeah, he's going to go in the first round. This is before his junior even started. A lot of guys know they're probably going to be high first-round draft picks if they get healthy, if they stay healthy. It was completely different for me. I, had, I basically had two weeks' notice and ended up getting drafted ninth overall. And it was, I mean, it just seemed like it happened so fast. Not drafted in high school, 79 miles an hour. Three years later, I'm touching 94, and I end up being the ninth overall pick. And the reason I say I like sharing that is because I don't want people to think uh, that they have to be great you know, when they're 10 years old, 15 years old, even 18 years old. I wasn't. I was good. I could play a little bit, but I certainly wasn't a draft material, and people weren't knocking down my door uh, by any means. And, and file, it wasn't a guy they were following draft-wise. It happened late, and I always get discouraged when I hear parents at 13, 14 years old, yeah, my, I don't think my kid's going to be good enough. You have no idea. Uh, what is going to happen in this sport, and it just it saddens me that some people will give up on the game so early, thinking that they don't have a chance. Well, and your you know your story it helps answer a question. I don't think we can. I, a question like I have could never be answered perfectly because uh, humans are too complicated. But the, we we we've all met you many more than I have met uh, great athletes who are basically told from the time they're 9 or 10 or 11 or whatever years old, you're a tremendous athlete, you're, you've got a bright future ahead of you, and uh, you wind up with arrested adolescence, essentially. You, you've played with any number of them. Sure. Uh, and I've always sort of wondered, you, 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 you just don't seem like that sort of person, and I've always wondered, well, how did that happen? How, how, how is CJ so humbled, even though he became, you know, even though he was a first-round draft pick? And it sounds like, I suspect it has a lot to do with your parents, which I think is true for basically every everybody, but also the fact that you didn't, you had no idea how good you were going to be until it was until your personality was well formed. Yeah, I think it's part of it. I think it definitely helps. Upbringing is the biggest one. I think it's harder for guys now because they're getting so much more attention when they're when they're younger, right? So much earlier now right. with the perfect game stuff and all the prospect coverage that goes on and how much people pay attention to that. It's harder. I'm I'm always more impressed when I run across an Andy Pettit kind of guy, really successful but still really humble. That sticks out more because that's now um, the opposite of what we're seeing. The bulk of what we see is guys that that kind of like themselves a little bit, that dig themselves. Even the guys. That are, are pretty good guys, still have their moments. Um, and so I, I find myself kind of rooting. I'm, first of all, more blown away when we see it, when I run across a guy who's humble, uh, who's a really good player. Um, but also just, you know, the guys that are, are gracious to other people along the way and haven't forgotten where they come from. I just saw Tory Hunter wrote a pretty cool piece for the Players Tribune and talking about sleeping in his car, waiting for his first, you know, paycheck in AA so they stayed in their car until they could get it figured out, uh, him and another guy, uh, those kinds of things. And that's why he ends up being, I think, probably probably one, one of the good guys. And it's hard. I mean, when they have that much success and make that much money, it is really difficult. But I think about stories like Chris Calabello, non-drafted, uh, seven, eight years of independent ball, then gets a shot with the Twins, and then last year has a monster season at 31 years old uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays. I love those stories. Jordan Zimmerman, a walk-on at a Division three school. I mean, you talk about, that's why I'm saying, like some of these kids think they have no chance, and most of them don't. The reality is you don't, but uh, you got to work hard. you got to believe. I, I, that was the one 
one consistent for me. It's so funny. I talk about like my freshman year in college when I was terrible. Um, I wasn't good my junior year in high school. I had a little bit of an elbow injury. I didn't pitch well. I never didn't believe I wasn't going to make it. I think that was the one thing that always stuck in my mind. Not that I was cocky about it, but the goal was always the same, and I never lost hope. But nobody ever told me I wasn't going to make it. Even though I was having some some down years during my amateur time, There were, I never didn't believe that it wasn't going to happen. The dream from when I was seven years old, when I met Willie Randolph and said, I'm going to be on the Yankees and Willie Randolph's going to be my teammate, that that continued to ring true really even up to the draft and even beyond that. I, no, I never believed it wasn't going to happen. Was anybody, I, I think there's something to that. Was anybody ever pushing you or was it always you pushing you? Uh, no, my parents were great. My parents were really good. My father did not care what I did. He just cared how I did it. Mm-hmm. He would say to me all the time, and he, he'd be on me about you know focusing through high school and where was my focus. And I played drums in, in my junior year and played in this little band, and we were terrible, but I had fun. <laughs> and I probably partied a little bit too much in high school, and he was always on me about you know staying focused. Whatever your dream is, whatever you're going to do, you're going to work hard at it. He said, I don't care if you're going to be in sanitation or if you want to you be a baseball player. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to work hard at it. And it was one of those things where it was constant. I was like, ugh, like how many times is he going to say that to me? But I'm extremely grateful that that was something that he said to me all the time and I try to share that with my kids now and say you know I'm not here to be your friend I'm here to be your parent and as much as I want us to have a good relationship it's also my job to make sure that you know I'm forming you and pushing you in the right direction and, and being the guy that's holding you, you accountable until you're good enough until you're in the right place where you're holding yourself accountable uh, they were good about it they never pushed me in a way I had one pitching lesson as a kid I never really and that was a group lesson and I never really played on any kind of travel teams at all it just didn't really exist that there was a local OTB team that did some traveling in my town. I was never asked to play on it, uh, and so I didn't do it. Uh, but they just they were they were supportive. But they were it was all about the work ethic. You're going to work at whatever you're going to do, and then they would get behind it. And uh, I appreciated that. I, was, I come from a working class, blue collar family. Like I said, my dad in the navy, my mom a secretary, and um, I, I think that's a, a big part of me being able to get where I went, but then also to keep going through all those years, you know, 19 years of a lot of ups and downs. And uh, without that foundation and without the support of my wife through all those years, there's no chance that was happening. So I, I have way more things to talk, that I want to ask you about that we're going to have time for. But I, I really want to make sure we get to this. I want to, I'm just going to jump ahead or, or back or something. Um, can you talk about, to whatever degree you, you have time for or want to, uh, the experience that you had in 2002 with your son? Sure. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, I, I still have it on my website. It's still there. If people want to read the whole story, it's at cjbaseball.com. It's still sitting there. Uh, I think I have it on kind of under the faith section. But 2002, it was a, it was a game changer for me and my wife and definitely changed the way uh, we look at the world, look at our career, and certainly look at our children. But I was in camp with the Houston Astros. And part of the story is understanding what happened before that. I finished the year in 2001 with the New York Mets. First time I got to play for a New York team. I only got to pitch in five games but I pitched well and they actually asked me to come back and made me a, a, a very good offer. Steve Phillips, the general manager at the time, had offered me a contract. They took me off the roster but wanted to put me right back on it. They just wanted to cut my salary more than 20%, which you couldn't do uh, unless I went off the roster and came back on. Um, and I ultimately turned that deal down because it looked like I was going to be the third lefty with the Mets and I had a chance to go back to Houston. I had pitched for the Astros before and took a deal with the Houston Astros, a minor league deal, significantly less guaranteed money, but it looked like I could be the 
the go-to lefty setup guy. Billy Wagner was going to be our closer, but there was a wide open opportunity for me to be the setup guy, and I really needed the bounce back year because I did not have a good year in 2001. And so I signed with the Astros, and it didn't go well. It's the first time I had to compete for a spot in a really long time, and I I overthought it. Shocker, and it's my life story overthinking <laughs> everything. But I overthought it and just was really inconsistent. Either pitched had a great game or a terrible game, and it was kind of one after another. It was just a really bad setup. And I ended up getting released at the end of spring training. And Jerry had told me, he said, hey, Jerry Hunsinger, our general manager, said, you're on the team. I just can't put you on the roster until the end of the year. That's what he told me when I signed there before spring training started. It was a, it was a verbal guarantee that I was going to break camp with the team. Well, I ended up getting released at the end of spring training, and I could have made a big deal about it with Jerry. I did not. I just I handled it, I think, pretty professionally with him, and I understood, and I put him in a bad spot with my inconsistency and in how I pitched. So I'm sitting at home, and my wife and I were renting uh, one of these houses in spring training that had the the covered pool. And my son at the time had just turned two years old. My daughter was uh, about six or seven months old. And so we're sitting there and I'd gotten released. And first time in my life that I'd really gotten released. And we're sitting in our living room. Her fa- My father-in-law was there, my wife's father. And just kind of going through everything, going, man, what happened? You know, A year ago, I was making a seven-figure salary and I just got released from having a layup job here uh, with the Houston Astros. And you know, what is going to become of my career? The first time you go through that, it's a tough time. Uh, it's probably good when you go through it. It definitely defines you a little bit as a person. A lot of different thoughts come and certainly a humbling moment. But so I'm sitting here, I'm going through all this and I start hearing like water running. And I was like, what is that sound? I kind of, you know, it's like I, I just kind of shook it off. Like, ah, I don't know what, you know, what I'm listening to or what I'm hearing. I ignore it. Again, I start going through my thoughts of, you know, where are their needs? It's the end of spring training. It's very tough to find a job. What am I going to do? I hear the water running again. I'm like, what is that? And I thought what happened was my son was playing with the sink because in this particular house, he would always turn on the sink and he was fascinated by water coming out of the faucet at the spring training house. So didn't really look. Again, I'm just so involved on my own thoughts. I'm eating at the same time. I'm home in the middle of the day, which I never would have been had I not gotten released. And so I hear the sound again for a third time. And I'm like, what is that water sound I hear? And I looked up and realized that the sliding glass door that went out to the pool was open. It was cracked open. And what I was hearing was the filter was on. And so as the filter was on, the water's kind of moving in the pool and it's rub it's kind of, you know, brushing up against the, the side of the pool. That was the sound that I'd heard. Well, I realized that there was a good chance my son had gone out there. And sure enough, I jump up out of my seat and I run out to the patio and I see my then two year old son uh, sinking to the bottom of the pool. He was he he'd snuck out there and walked into the pool on his own and I think was just in a diaper and basically if you can imagine uh, what I saw was him, his arms were up over his head and he was just slowly sinking to the bottom of the pool and my wife jumps up and she starts screaming and I jump in the pool and I pull him out and we're, you know, we're wondering is how long has he been in there is, you know, you, you think the most awful things sure. that you could possibly think and pull him out and he's coughing and he's breathing and everything seems fine and I'm kind of talking to him and trying to get responses from him and we just dodged a huge bullet I mean there's just there's no two ways about it and one of the things there's so many things that happened that day that just really put us in a, a space and a place that we're just questioning what was going on but you know one of the things that had happened first of all like I said I, I would not have been home uh, had I not gotten released that day and, and who knows if the events would have play, played out that exact same way you know my wife was overcome by the the information as well but nobody else heard 
what I had heard that day. Nobody else heard the water running. I couldn't even imagine what to think would have happened if that filter just had not happened to be on that day. Uh, the alarm on the sliding glass door, which a lot of the, you know, when you have a pool, you, a lot of times you'll put the alarm on the door when you have young kids. Well, we had to disable the alarm because it would go off randomly in the middle of the night when the doors were closed and it would scare the crap out of everybody. So we had to disable those. And it was just one of those things. It was like, you know, how strange that it got released, that I was the one that heard it. And it's really easy and for a lot of people that are skeptical to just kind of dismiss it and say, well, just circumstances and, and that's fine. But I just I couldn't go there. It just it, I wasn't comfortable with it. And I just put myself in a position where I was just finding out. And, you know, I was I grew up Catholic. And so I was religious, but I didn't really have a relationship and didn't really, you know, probably a very hypocritical Catholic and didn't so what really is, what understand does that mean? my faith. When, what does that mean when, you, when you're religious, but but don't have the relationship. So I think, you know, what I've learned over the years is I've dug in a little bit more and this is really what kickstarted for me. But, you know, you can be religious and you can follow a set of rules, right? And you can sit there and say, okay, you know, for Catholicism, it's easy to slide into, uh, make sure you're there on Sunday and thinking, okay, is God checking off, you know, checking me off and for attendance? As long as I'm there, he doesn't care. As long as I show up, you know, you kind of get, you go into that and you do the standing up and the sitting down and you're repeating prayers, but nothing, and I'm not saying this can't happen in Catholicism, but just for me, there wasn't a lot that was genuine. I don't think I ever knew much about who God was, the God of the Bible, and who Jesus was in the Bible, and all of these things. I just, I was just, you know, I showed up for attendance and always thought I was a pretty good guy and good enough, and, and that was fine, but never really had any kind of relationship uh, with God, with Jesus, and really understood the story of Jesus, and why did he have to die on the cross? I mean, I couldn't have answered that question. I went to Catholic grade school, high school, and even college for a couple of years, and at that point in my life, I could not answer the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? I would not have been able to answer it, and so I was sitting there and just kind of going through it and trying to figure it out and uh, got put in a place, ended up signing back with the Astros to go to AAA and run across Pete, uh, Pete Monroe, former right-handed pitcher who started questioning me on some things. He was very outspoken about his faith and I just started walking him through some things that had happened and I said, man, I don't know what it is, but I just feel like you know God is trying to get my attention. I don't know why, but that's what I felt like. And you know, all of those moments from spring training ultimately led me uh, to become, you know, what I call myself just a, a non not quiet, a non-denominational Christian um, and a guy that uh, you know has much more of a relationship. It kicked off a relationship as opposed to um, you know as a, as a guy that just was religious, if that makes sense. But it was a it was a scary moment for all of us, for sure, and a defining moment. And we don't even really like to talk about it that much because you know thinking about what could have happened is certainly uh, certainly a scary thought for both my wife and I. Does your does your son is he familiar well familiar with that story? You know, we haven't talked about it in a while. He definitely knows. It's come up before. Um, I don't know if he knows in detail. You know, what I did was I ended up writing about it two months later, and that's what's on the website. And I just kind of left it as it was. I didn't change it. You know, it's not perfectly written. I could certainly go back and probably edit some of it, and, and, and it would read a little bit better. But I just wanted to leave it as it was in 2002. Uh, so it's there. I don't know if he's actually ever read that part of it before or not. Uh, but he knows. I mean, he we've we shared the story, but I don't know if he's ever really taken the time to really dig in and, and think about you know what actually happened that day and what could have happened and what it could have meant you know teenagers it's it's tough sometimes to get them to to dig in uh, in a situation like that but he he knows the story i don't know if he really understands the detail of the magnitude of it or, or how close things really were so you've got three minutes left right okay is that right? Uh, yeah I, I have a couple minutes. we can go over a little more yeah, yeah. I was okay. I, there's so I, many. I have to pick him up from baseball practice at some point, but I know uh, I got I got a little bit of extra time. So uh, let me throw a couple of things at you. First of all, I wanted to mention you mentioned your, your your personal website. The first time I remember coming across C.J. Nikowski, aside from probably seeing your name in the draft or something, was 
probably in 1996 or maybe it was 97 when I had not been at my my job with ESPN.com for long, there was this baseball player who was actually on the internet writing, <laughs> which was, I believe, you. I was essentially the first baseball blogger. We didn't call it a blog back then, mm-hmm. but... But I was doing the sorts of things that bloggers do, writing in the first person, responding to, to, to email, putting my email address out there, um, uh, writing follow-up columns, things that writers had not done before, whether in newspapers or the internet or whatever. And right around the same time, you were probably the first baseball player um, who was on the internet. And uh, I was. I think we even exchanged emails briefly back in probably 97 or 98. I might be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure we did. I wish I still had that. Uh, what, what, what motivated you to do that? I wasn't motivated at all. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't really my idea. It was all accidental. When I got traded to the Houston Astros in 1997, this was pre-MLB.com days, and this is when team websites were run independently, and they all looked different. And the guys that ran the Astros website that ran Astros.com, a company called Twinspin, they approached me and said, if you make the team, would you be interested in writing a column for us? And, of course, I had no idea what any of that really meant. They were going to put it on the Internet, and I'm like, uh, well, Why sure. did they choose you? I have no idea. That's a good question. I have no idea uh, why those guys, and it was two twins that ran it. Um, they just asked me. I mean, I'm sure you know Jeff Bagwell certainly wasn't interested, and Craig Biggio <laughs> wasn't interested, but for some reason, maybe they were making their way through the clubhouse. I'm, you know, I'm sure they had that kind of access then and getting to know guys, and for whatever reason, you know, the quirky lefty, you know, maybe he's the one that, that has something to offer. So I said, sure. Well, I ended up not making the team that spring and, and got sent down to AAA, and when I went to minor league camp, they asked me again, hey, would you be interested in doing this from AAA? And I was like, well, now this definitely doesn't make any sense. Who has any interest in listening to, you know, any of this, but I said, sure, I'll do it. And I had uh, zero writing experience. I was a terrible English student. I did awful on my SATs on the English part of it. I was a math guy. I was just, English was just not my thing. And so, um, what ended up happening was I did it. I said, okay. Uh, they called it the big scoop on the big easy. And, and every two weeks I would write a column and they would send it out on their email list. And it was fun to do. And I it was never about me. It was just more about life in AAA and trying to share uh, what that was like. We just opened the new stadium in New Orleans. And so we got to kind of highlight that a little bit. And just it became it became a thing. And the first one that I sent out, I put my personal email, AOL, uh, my personal AOL email address on it. And I got a note from Pat Coleman who I think was with, it wasn't Baseball Digest, I can't remember who he was with, but he was a writer, and he had said to me, he's like, CJ, he's like, you, you, is that your personal email address? Or he had it already. And he goes, yeah, you don't, you don't want to send out your personal email address. People are going to want to send you emails. Like, well, who was going to want to send me an email, right? We're still kind of going through this whole thing and figuring <laughs> it out. Uh, but I quickly realized I needed a second email address, and that there was about 2,500 people on the list at the beginning of the year, and then by the end of the year, there was up over 10,000. And for me, the light bulb went on and said, oh, wow, people really enjoy the personal interaction with a player. Now it's all over the place, right? There's so many different ways to do it, but this wasn't happening in 1997. And I was also sharing pictures and those kinds of things that I was taking during the year. And I had said, uh, I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be easier instead of people having to wait two weeks, if I could just come up with a website 
where they could just visit it at their leisure and they'll have stories there and I'll have pictures there and here's what life is like in the minor leagues. And that's ultimately what ended up turning into cjbaseball.com. It wasn't, I originally did it as an AOL, AOL website, so it had this ridiculously long email or uh, web address to get to it. Um, but eventually I just, I figured out how to, or somebody helped me figure out how to get my own domain name and kind of took it from there. And um, yeah, completely accidental, no passion for it, not my idea. <laughs> uh, just, it fell in my lap and then I realized, you know, personal interaction with athletes is something that baseball fans enjoy. And I think the fact that I never made it specifically about me or tried not to make it about me, but about the game, not forgetting what it was like as a fan. I have access to things that you do not. Uh, and here's what it looks like. So let me get uh, two things I want you to talk about. I'll give you your choice of one because I know we don't have time for everything I want to I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, but I'm fascinated by a CJ Nitkowski movie star. <laughs> and B, playing for Mr. O. T- your choice. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you three, and I promise to do the quickest I can. I will tell you about, first of all, playing for Sadahara O was just a really cool experience. He, you know, wasn't the greatest manager in the world, uh, but he was certainly um, a really, really nice guy. Very genuine, always, excuse me, very genuine, always concerned about how you were adjusting to life in Japan. Uh, 868 home runs. He, there's nothing like him in the States. There's no, there's no person to compare him to. It's Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Bob Gibson, all wrapped up in one. He is a national treasure uh, in Japan, and it was a cool experience to do it. Uh, but he, um, you know, it was tough too. He was really tough on the farm <laughs> players and the expectations for I, but he was fantastic. And I, I have remember this there's a story where he said, Mr. O uh, would like you to stop pitching sidearm. I love that story. Oh yeah. He didn't like that at all. I, that's <laughs> when I was trying to mix in sidearm and mix things up. And I had gotten a couple of guys out in spring training with it. Uh, Rick short uh, and Kevin Witt, a couple of the Americans were over there. I faced him. They were telling me how good it looks, but I walked one guy and I come off and he barely would talk to you directly. It was usually through another coach. And then that coach through a translator. And that was the message. Mr. O said, don't ever throw sidearm again. <laughs> and I was like, I just struck out two guys, but I walked one in the first time I ever did it in spring training. And I got Rick short coming over and, telling me how nasty it looked and how the movement was and Kevin Witt who was a left-handed hitter was like dude that's really good there's a place for that and I was told I was never ever allowed to do it again I would I would try to sneak one in here and there and it was one of those things where if I did it I better get somebody out or throw a ball but if God forbid I let up a base hit I was going to hear about it from Sadaharo probably get sent to the minor leagues that's how strict things were uh, as far as being in the movie 42 it was an awesome experience I had no business doing it I didn't another thing that I kind of fell into was just happenstance I was coaching my son's team he was 12 at the time, one of his teammates' uh, mothers had a friend who was looking for extras to be in the movie 42. They were just looking for people to be in the background. I ended up, um, I, I ended up uh, being asked to read for a role, and then got that opportunity to play Dutch Leonard. So I got to you know go behind uh, the curtain and see how that world works. And Harrison Ford was on set. Didn't talk to me. Didn't look at me in the eye. But he, we were we were on set at the same time, and they, we shot it at uh, at Old Ingle Stadium in Chattanooga, which is where I started my career, which was a, a really cool moment. But that was a ton of fun it's one of those things i'll probably never have an opportunity to do uh again but it was uh, so much fun and so cool to see how that goes a lot of standing around and doing nothing a lot of 13 hour days with very little action uh it was it was really interesting and i'm such that and my wife hates this about me but i i feel like i can 
make things more efficient. I, I think they're pretty <laughs> consistent. Like I see things, I'm like, hey, there's a better way to do this. I'm not necessarily the idea guy, but I feel like I'm the efficiency expert. I might not be, and I'm probably not. And she drives her crazy. She's like, you always think your way is the better way. But I'm watching how this movie is being filmed. I'm like, there's a better way to do this and probably save a lot of people money. But uh, that's kind of a ridiculous thought, thinking it's the first time I ever stepped on a movie set and I have ideas <laughs> on, how it, on how it could be better. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty arrogant of me to think that I could do that. But the one thing, and actually I don't even know if I told you about this or not, I did tweet about it. But uh, one thing that I've gotten to be involved in now on the other side working for Fox was uh, my boss there, Eric Shank, so the boss president of, of Fox Sports, put me in touch with a guy named Dan Fogelman who uh, wrote on the movie Cars and has done a lot of other things in Hollywood and has a big production deal right now with Fox. And he is producing a show and has put together a show um, – uh, about the first woman to ever make it to the major leagues, and they it's it's uh, and it's going to be there's a pilot that's going to be now filmed, but they've asked me to consult on that script, uh, which has been a lot of fun to make sure they have all the baseball language right, and we're making this thing look uh, as real as possible. And so right now, I think they're just the working title is called The Girl, but Fox is going to go ahead and and film the pilot, and uh, hopefully we can make this a believable thing, and hopefully it's a series that gets picked up. But that's been a kind of a neat little thing that I've gotten to see from those side. The writing side of it is much more fun. To to me uh, much more interesting and intriguing than maybe being in front of the camera and having a chance to act. That was cool, and it wasn't really acting. I was just pitching. Uh, but now to be involved in, in helping somebody shape scenes of a baseball television show that hopefully at some point will get picked up, it's a tough sell. I mean, it's the first woman to get to the big leagues as a pitcher. That's not going to be uh, an, e- an easy sell. No, and that was interesting, too, because that was part of the conversation. What do you do? What is her out pitch? You know, we're not going to say she throws 97 and it'd be so unbelievable. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I can tell you, I don't want to give it away because I don't know what kind of trouble I can get into, but it's not a knuckleball, which I'm glad they decided not to do because that felt a little gimmicky to me um, for a TV thing. It's definitely a believable out pitch. Right. makes a lot of sense cool. and uh, hopefully, we, hopefully we do it right, but it's been a, it's been a lot of fun and they're going to film the uh, the pilot here pretty soon, but watching the, the script kind of get played out and trying to get it right and, and these guys, and they have some pretty cool credits. Rick Singer and Dan Fogelman are the two guys that are in charge of this project and writing this script and it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right. One more for you, if it's okay. Yeah. Um, Ouch. You you got drafted ninth in the country mm-hmm. um, because, in part, you threw around ninety four, right? Is that mm-hmm. which, when did ninety four go away, and what did that feel like? You know what? I was really lucky, and it didn't go away for a long time for me. Even my last year—I shouldn't say my last year, but my last year before I went to Asia, so two thousand and six. I pitched in AAA the entire year, and then I went on a four-run or five-year run where I was in Asia, four years of pitching, one year of an injury. I was still seeing it. I was still seeing 93-94 as a 33-year-old. Now, once I got over to Asia, um, I felt like velocity went down a little bit, and uh, I'll be done in five minutes. Sorry. Uh, And then... um, you know, velocity started to go down a little bit back then, but it, I still really wasn't losing it that bad until I finally got hurt. When I was in Korea in 2009 and I was starting, uh, I hadn't started like a decade. And they put, I didn't even know it was going to be a starter when I got over there. It wasn't until I got over there. And then it finally caught up to me. And I was still seeing low 90s and still being able to pitch 91, 92. Maybe I'd lost a couple of miles an hour. But then I blew my rotator cuff out right in the middle of a playoff game. I was our game one starter. I was cruising through the first two innings. I threw a pitch. I felt something. I knew the next pitch was really going to hurt. I fell to the ground in pain to finish off that inning and really never threw uh, over the top again in, in a competitive situation. I went sidearm the rest of the way, and my velocity was, was a lot further down. So I was able to take that to about 34, 35 uh, until my arm finally gave out. 
And uh, for those who don't know, CJ actually made a uh, tried to made a comeback as a side armor, which would have been interesting, but unfortunately didn't 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 wind up leading to the majors, right? So close, and it was so much fun. You know, you have such different perspective. I went back to the minor leagues at 39 years old. Got a call from JP Ricciardi, who had saw me pitch in spring training. Calls me back in June and says, uh, "We're going. We'd like to give you a shot. Uh, are you okay going to Double A?" <laughs> and which kind of made me laugh. But I was like, "Sure, why not?" I hadn't been to Double A since 1995, uh, and so it had been a pretty long time. But what a cool experience to go! And I had a guy come up to me and, and say to me in Double A, "Says, you know what?" He goes, "I was the oldest guy on this team before you got here." I said, "How old are you?" And he said. I'm 28. <laughs> Just, and I had him by 11 years, but I had a completely different perspective, and it was so much fun. And I did get close, and it was throwing really well once I got to AAA, and there was an article about, hey, they were probably going to give him a shot in September, and I fell apart in the end, and I just didn't have enough left in the tank. Oh. It was such a cool experience that uh, I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. To go back when you do it when you're older and not care uh, as much necessarily um, because you, you have a completely different perspective. You feel like you shouldn't even be pitching at 39. It was really cool. I was hoping to throw a pitch at 40. Uh, it didn't happen. I threw my last pitch in January of 2013, uh, an independent ball with the Toros, Del Esti, uh, but that was it. Uh, my, my 40th birthday was two months away. I couldn't quite get there, but I was able to make it until I was 39. Well, this has been great. I tell people all the time one of the best things about working at Fox has been getting to be your, one of your colleagues. So thanks for doing this, and uh, we will talk again next week. I appreciate it, Rob, and I apologize for my dog interruptions and my <laughs> wife interruptions and everything else. But it was, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to doing this again next week. All right, sounds good. Thanks, CJ. Take care.